the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 395, premium for Thursday, May 3rd, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. The show where you send in your questions, we answer some questions, you send in your tips, we share some tips. Together, we all try to learn a little something new. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Awesome. How's Fairfield today, John? Is it uh, rainy like it is up here in Durham? Yeah, kind of dreary. Yeah. Rainy. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how it goes. I guess well, that's, no, uh, that's I, part I'm of expecting- the spring thing. I suppose I was expecting a bit more, uh, you know, a bit more warmth, but well, April, April showers bring May flowers, but uh, I guess we're just still seeing the, the remnants of April. Well, I'm seeing the, yeah, no, I saw you, you took a shot of your yard there. Apparently it just, uh, exploded into green, but we, we got the, uh, and I don't know about you, but the, uh, all the trees here are doing the, uh, you know, which I always find odd, the, uh, the flowering thing right now. And they've yep. been doing that for the last several weeks and, uh, yep. it's always nice to see. Yeah, yeah, it's just like poof. All the leaves are out, and and uh, it's good. And the pollen and and allergies are. <laughs> yeah, well, there's are. there's that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Let's just start with Jeremy, and then we'll and then we'll go from from there. We'll see what we'll happens. go somewhere. Yeah, Jeremy writes. I have a question on something I would like, but can't seem to find. You guys know of a way to watch DVDs on an iPad? I love being able to use iTunes sharing to watch videos on my Mac on my iPad without having to download it. And I do rip some DVDs using handbrake, but with TV shows, it doesn't really make sense to rip all the individual episodes. Have you, any of you uh, found anything that can stream DVD video from a Mac to an iPad or even thought about it? Uh, So no, I hadn't really ever thought about this before, but I can totally see why, uh, why you would want to do that. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's, there's various different things that, that, could allow this. Uh, I, I stumbled onto one uh, at airplayit.com uh, that appears to be purpose built to do exactly this. And, and it's free. There's an app that you run for the Mac and there's an app that you run uh, on your iPad or iPhone. And, uh, and it plays the DVD from the Mac and streams it off to the, the iOS device over your local network. Uh, obviously you'd want to, you know, you need to have a fast network cause it's going to be blasting all this data across but uh, but that would be the case regardless of of uh, of how you're doing this. So, yeah. So airplay dot com is 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 one place that I found. John, uh, you have any thoughts on this? I don't have an iPad, so. Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't know. But you, the, the only thing I could suggest now, he's mentioning TV shows. Um, I have to try this and, and I, I, I have to imagine that Optimum Online or Cablevision is not the only one that does this, but, and I'll have to try it again. I downloaded it. I haven't tried it, but apparently they have an app where if you're a member, um, you can stream uh, live video to your, I, I assume it's not only iPhone, but your iDevice. Oh, that's true. So yeah, that's right. Comcast has their Xfinity. HBO has HBO Go. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. So, so a number of uh, people that provide live video will offer a app where I guess you got to authenticate and be a member and all that great stuff. You can stream right to your device. And I think actually the optimum one, I think also lets you, uh, lets you control 
your uh, cable box and do do all sorts of other things. So, oh, so I suppose cool. that's one. So I suppose that's one option. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'll yeah, have to yeah. try it again on the iPhone. It's a uh, you know probably not very fulfilling. I don't think they offer the app for streaming to my Mac, though maybe they do. I'll, I'll have to research this. Uh, you well, Xfinity, which is what Comcast is changing their name into, uh, it offers. Uh, streaming in the web browser on the Mac. So perhaps that's available to you um, on, you know, on your Mac. So they they didn't have to write a separate app to do it. All right. Uh, Moving on to art. Uh, John, you want to take art? (laughs) Where do you want me to take? (laughs) Take him to the, take him to the land of knowledge. I'll take him, take him to the fair or the carnival or whatever. So, Art's question is very simple, and I have a very simple answer. On show 392, you talked about Drive Genius 3, $99 US. Do you recommend any lower cost or free alternatives? And his question was in the context of defrag, which, of course, is a way to optimize your drive by making sure all the files are all in the... All the blocks in a file are one after another, which, especially for rotational drives, gets you the best performance, not so much for, for SSDs and stuff. But I'm going to answer his question with, with two options here. So one I did find, though I had not used it, but there is a free demo from what I can see. So there's something called ID Frag, and they're actually uh, across the pond there. And initially, they offer the price in euros, but if you say you're in the United States, uh, their product is $30.95. And that's... Uh, Coriolis-systems.com. Cool. So that's one option, and that's certainly uh, you know thirty ninety five. If you just want to do defrag, that that's certainly less than ninety nine dollars. Right. Well, I love Drive Genius, uh, and I think it offers a whole bunch of other benefits. But yeah, if you just want to do defrag, do that. But then the other thing I thought of, Dave, is that. Um, so I guess this would be the cheapskate or poor man's <laughs> method of uh, doing a defrag, and it would certainly take a lot more time than one of these programs that are meant to do this. But as far as I know, and I've seen people mention this, but if you get something like my favorite, uh, you know, you and I have our favorites. Uh, my favorite is Carbon Copy Cloner. Sure. Yep. Which pretty much does a full copy of all the files on one drive and can write them all to another drive. So another suggestion I have is you, you could use something like this, and I imagine you could use SuperDuper as well, which I think is the program that you prefer. Yep. Take all the data from one drive, copy it all over to another drive, then erase the original drive and copy everybody back. And what it should do is copy all the files and put them maybe not in an order that that is optimum. I, I would assume that the, the programs like IDFrag and uh, Drive Genius put them you know, either smallest to largest or whatever. I, I would assume that they do something somewhat intelligent, where something like Carbon Copy Cloner or, or Super Duper basically just write everything from one to the other and, and really don't think about the uh, the size or, or the optimum ordering. But they will write out, you know, because the drive is fresh, it'll write them out as contiguous files. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, it, th- th- that's true. Yeah, it it is worth mentioning while while we're talking about this that OS ten and I know we talked about this in in three ninety three, but uh, very briefly, OS ten also does its hot files management, which is where it defrags some of the smaller files that it uses regularly. So, um, so you know it, that is there is some level of this happening essentially for free with the OS. So, in addition to caching. 
which we've discussed as Correct. well. Correct. That's right. So like kernel, for example, I know kernel extensions, uh, once, you know, once you boot, it will create a, a file that lumps them all together. And, and normally I think they're, you know, very tiny little files and it lumps it all into one, I think very large file. And, uh, as long as you don't change that, then you will be reading from the, uh, kernel extension cache. And I think, uh, our, one of our favorite programs to reset those or erase them so they get rebuilt is of course onyx yep yep that's right that's so, right that's my answer and i'm sticking to it awesome chuck writes this has quickly become a serious issue within just the last couple of days i use a macbook pro with redundant external backups one complete time machine two separate complete carbon copy clones and one drive exclusively for itunes also via carbon copy cloner a few days ago, I found that both Time Machine and one Carbon Copy clone got snagged in trying to copy some of my iTunes music files. Looking at the error log from Carbon Copy Cloner, I verified the files on the second clone, used them to replace the bad files on my MacBook Pro, and thought I'd solved it all. Of course, I had no knowledge that other files may also be corrupted, not only in iTunes, but also possibly files that would normally be copied after iTunes. Just now, I've begun to run the iTunes-only clone, and I find new files with the same problem. If I understood the error messages, uh, it tries to copy the file twice before giving up and moving on to the next. Meanwhile, I have a lovely spinning beach ball and a non-responsive Mac. I couldn't access iStat menus, but I could see the indicator showing only about a third of memory tied up. At one point, I thought maybe I should force quit iTunes and or Carbon Copy Cloner. Uh, Command Option Escape brought up the force quit as expected, but using it seemed ineffective. Uh, it took two to three minutes before force quit would work. All this seems to entail at least two major concerns. Number one, how can I identify all the corrupted files so that I may replace them with still good copies from my backups? And two, what other diagnostics or techniques might help? I booted from one of my clones to use disk utility to repair the MacBook Pro internal drive, but repair was grayed out. Likewise, I used Drive Genius, uh, uh, the, 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 and, and it showed that, uh, I guess it showed some, some uh, spurious results. Finally, last night before turning in, I started a drive genius scan of the drive and it said it should take roughly 90 minutes. I left my cursor uh, in the, my disabled sleep position and dim the screen just to make sure it wouldn't quit. This morning, I find it stopped at about 75 percent completed uh, years back. It seemed like maybe it was disk utility that used to find and isolate bad blocks. What do I do about the data in the integrity check failed uh, stuff from drive genius uh, below? OK, so let's talk about a couple of these things. You mentioned that uh, the machine goes unresponsive when it's trying to copy or scan or deal with these files. That unresponsiveness, you know, you said you looked at RAM and RAM wasn't being used. So that wasn't the reason for it going unresponsive. Well, the reason your machine goes unresponsive when your RAM is full is because the machine has to swap out to the disk. And so there, it's waiting for disk activity. Uh the same thing is happening in your situation, but it's not waiting because it has to swap out memory to the disk. It's waiting because the disk is not being responsive. This, it, you know, your, your computer is actually constantly waiting for the disk to do things. It's, it's a big part of, of uh, wait states, which is something we mentioned in the last show. But, uh, but if, it, but if it can't read a single block, it normally the machine can can read, you know, blocks very, very quickly. And so these wait states uh, stay basically unnoticed. But if you've got a bad disk, which I think you do, then uh, those wait states 
obviously are much longer and much more noticeable. So I think your reason that the files are getting corrupt is that you've got a bad disk. And that's also the same reason that you're seeing these major pauses. That's a that's a, a really a telltale indicator that that's what's going on here. And that and it also all makes sense. You know, it can't do the full scan of the drive. Um, all of this stuff points to bad disk. So in your case, Chuck, you need to uh, take your backup, replace the drive that's in your Mac with a new drive, a replacement if it's under warranty uh, or a replacement. If it's not, you, you don't really have a choice. That drive should not be considered trustable or even usable at any further point. Um, yes, the system should map out bad blocks as they come up, but only to a certain point. And, and you've. You've gone way, way past that if you're noticing this kind of thing happening. So that that drive is is either out or on its way out. But you did ask a question, which is an interesting question of how can I tell what files can't be read? I mean, that that's essentially what you're looking for. Um, that, but really, that's not what you're looking for, Chuck, to be honest, to be frank. Uh but it's it, it is a it is a valid question and and an interesting one to answer. So I'm going to turn it over to you, John, for uh, to to kick us off on that. Or or if you've got anything else on on what we've already talked about. But my guess is you agree with me that Chuck's drive is dead. It's it's slowly dying, and what's happening is that yeah, parts of the drive that used to work are not anymore, and the drive is doing its very best to try to get the data, but right. something is is slowly failing now. One way you can see this, we touched on it in the last episode, but we'll touch on it again, is that uh, most drives employ a technology called smart. And smart is not just a one or zero thing. It's also something where with the right utility, such as smart reporter or something called smart control, which is a command line utility, you can query the drive and say, hey, you know what? Tell me what's going on inside. And some of the values that come back in this, what we'll call a smart data block can indicate that the drive is having problems reading certain blocks. So one way to guard against this would be to run a smart utility and, and see if it reports something. It doesn't always, but you know, it's better than nothing. The, the problem I would say, Dave, is that for the most part at, at the file level, I don't think any operating system, unless you add something, has the ability to determine whether a file is damaged due to the hard drive well, either due to an application maybe screwing something up or the hard drive starting to fail. Normally, there's no operating system out of the box will do that. Now, there That's are right. utilities. Yeah. Uh, now, what I'll mention, though, and now this is something that, you know, to think about and something that I you know, did a bit of research on recently, is that there are utilities that can, I guess basically what they do is they do a calculation on each file and then write out this value in addition to the file. And now whether you call it a, the, the very basic one is called the checksum, which takes all the data in the file and adds it up and comes up with a number. There are some, some more sophisticated things called the CRC or MD5 or SHA-1 that are all ways to take a blob of data and come up with a value. And then if you run the same equation and the value comes up differently, you can assume that the file uh, is becoming corrupt. Either do, again, it, it, it's hard to determine, well, with smart, you can determine whether it's hardware level or... Uh, with these utilities, uh, maybe you could assume that it's uh, an application may have uh, corrupted the data. And I did find one. We'll link to it called. Um, 
Well, it's a checksum utility. And there are a number of methods to do this, but it, it requires a conscious step on your part to run these utilities, come up with these additional files. They'll take up extra space and then, you know, check them again. But that's one way to guard against it. I, I think the other way, Dave, to guard against it would be to employ some sort of uh, RAID technology. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or at so least, fault, well, at least fault going tolerance. Yeah. fault tolerance in that. So, so some uh, so RAID, of course, is redundant array of inexpensive disks. And some of the more advanced, I believe, RAID 5 is the first level of RAID that actually does the, the calculation I was talking about on the files that are on your drive. And if there's an inconsistency, it can do its very best to try to recover the file. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the Drobo does that in a sense as well. I think the Drobo has a setting where you can either say, you know, set up one drive or two drive redundancy, where if either one or two drives uh, start to go uh, on the fritz, uh, the data needed to recover the files is spread among the other drives and uh, you should be able to uh, to get it back. That's right. The only the only thing I'm aware of in uh, on OS 10 uh, that I'll mention, because you said you thought I, I had some magic way of, of determining this and in preference files you do. And that's the only facility that I'm aware of uh, in OS 10 and, and actually through Onyx, you can do this. So if you go to Onyx, verify and preferences, now it's only the preference files. But if you run this section of Onyx and you say, check my preference files, it will tell you if a preference file is corrupt. This is only for preference files. It's not for files in general. Mm, right. Yeah, that's true. Onyx will check them. And actually, Onyx, I think it goes a little bit further than just making sure it can read the file. It actually makes sure that it is a valid XML uh, is, mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. I think, what what Onyx is doing. Uh, but. Yeah, right. And the other thing I found was a, a nice little article over at the X Lab, which we've referred to in the past, but yep. they have a nice little article here called finding corrupted files. And really what you need is a utility who uh, as kind of a side benefit or one of the things that it does anyway is <laughs> check all the files on your disk. Then what utilities do this may you ask? Well, they mention a few here. One is antivirus software. If you do a full, the, the thing I want to mention here though, is that, we, and, and I think we talked, we mentioned in the past your disk utility, disk utility does not, check individual files disk utility doesn't even check your whole disk it just right. checks permissions of of system files and right. the 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 directory or table of contents of the drive for for corruption um and that's it that's all disk utility does in terms of utility in terms of troubleshooting it also partitions disks and does all the other stuff that, that of course, right. it does. But it is not looking at every file saying, oh, is every file, uh, has any file's integrity been been compromised? Yeah. No, it doesn't do that. It'll, yeah, as you said, it'll look at the catalog or the table of contents and see if that's been corrupted. Right. Um, so anyways, but the XLab article we have here uh, mentions a few things. So one, again, is antivirus software. If you put it in a mode where it scans all the files on the hard drive, then yeah, it's probably going to come across and maybe... If you don't see it in the antivirus program, you'll see it maybe in the console. Um, another thing is a uh, backup and recovery software, whether it be carbon copy cloner, super duper, or another program, any program that whose purpose in life is to read all your files on your disk. If it has a problem, either it will indicate it or, um, or in the console, you may see something. And this mentions that as well. 
So it's an interesting problem because I'm trying to think how to solve it. Well, I think, I mean, it, there are two things for, for Chuck specifically. I think we've given him a solution, replace the drive, you know, for if you want to find corrupted files, it's not an easy thing because what, what, you know, if you want to find, you talked about ways of finding whether files could be read or not, but that, but even if a file is readable, that doesn't mean that it's not corrupted from some other reason. Right. You know, I mean, leaving disk hardware failures out of it. There are other things that can corrupt files, including intentional corruption by other people. Right. Or software or viruses or whatever. So so it's a really tough little nut to crack. And and I don't think anyone's cracked it. If anybody out there knows, uh, I, let us know. What? Honestly, I think the best way to guard against this, Dave, is what we suggested, you know, in our, our recent backup edition. That's right is never have only one copy of anything that's important to you because it can, it may can and will at some point in the future get corrupted intentionally or due to hardware failure or software failure. So your, your, your best strategy is to have more than one of anything if it's important to you. And, uh, and it sounds like that. Well, it sounds like that happened in this case is that, and, and yeah, as you mentioned an archive, which is a, you know, snapshot frozen in time, right? of all your data, and then assuming that, you know, the backup program in question uh, read the data and wrote it properly, then, then there you go. So it's a, yeah, I, I, I was actually very interested because, you know, I did a little digging and, and found that, uh, again, I don't think any, at least, you know, a consumer operating system really does anything to guard against this at a high level. I'm sure, you know, some, you know, high powered stuff, high, high powered fault tolerance stuff, you know, in industry or, all yeah. that can do this or they may do the same thing. Make lots of backups and, and save your data. Yeah. <laughs> save early, save often. And uh, so you don't have a single point of failure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it would be hard. That. I think it would be hard in an automated way to know for certain that nothing has been corrupted. <clears throat> you know, I mean, the other thing that worked in, uh, you know, when I was doing the corporate thing is to have a, you know, like we use expressions to store data or storing code, a version control system is to have another system somewhere storing multiple versions of work that you've done in the past. So you have somewhere to go if, if something goes wrong. Right. Right. All right. On to Steve. Take it away. Okay. Steve has a good one. And, and, and I think I helped him save the day here. So Steve says, I have an iMac with Lion, iPhone 4S, and iPad 3 all on iCloud. Same account. I've made rules in Mail app on the iMac. They work immediately when I hit apply. Then the next day, the rules are gone from Mail Preferences Rules. Could it be a sync issue with iCloud? I do not see sync rules anywhere. And I think that is the case now with iCloud. That doesn't do that anymore, right? That, that's true. Yes, I think mobile me would do this, right? It would. What what I'm curious about, uh, and and it would require some testing. I don't know the answer, but even it, and and we'll talk. We potentially talk about this in in a future question. But mobile me would store copies, even if you weren't syncing your mail rule, rules with another machine. It would still store copies of those in its sync services database locally. On the, on the local Mac. So it's possible that some sync services corruption could cause this. I, mm. I, I, I know the answer already. So I know that that's not what happened with Steve, <laughs> but, but it is, it, it, it is possible that that stuff could be there, even if you do not have that box checked. So, and I'm, I imagine that iCloud is, is going to be similar 
with the things that it sinks, and this isn't one of them. So, okay. And to wrap up here, Steve says this has happened more than once. Some older rules are still there. However, only new rules I have made repeatedly recently do not stick. Yes, I am saving them after making them. And my response was as follows: Hi, Steve. <laughs> the rules should be stored in the file user directory slash library slash mail slash v two slash mail data slash message rules dot p list. There may also be a message rules dot p list dot backup file. Anything unusual about them? Last time of access. Permissions. If you double click on it, it should open up in your favorite plist editor and you can see the raw mail rules. Do they correspond to what you see in mail app? And his response was as follows, which warmed my heart. <laughs> yes, there was something unusual. Both files you mentioned had not been accessed. Date modified in over a year. So I made a rule, check the plist in text that it did not show up. Close mail app, reopen rules is gone. So trash the plist files, made a rule, closed mail, reopened, and also check the plist file, and the rule is saved in both mail and the plist file. So, corrupted plist file was his question, and I would say, yes. Well, it, it, possibly. Certainly that's... Probably that, is that either permissions or something with right. the plist file uh, prevented mail from properly storing his his updates yeah and it, and if he was able to open it in text edit it was probably a permissions thing as opposed to a corruption thing although either is certainly possible so yeah yeah but that's well, i'm mean, with you and the corruption could be that the the file was marked as maybe not writable and yeah right anytime you tried to save it and for whatever stupid reason mail didn't say uh by the way i can't save these it just <laughs> right gave up maybe the console would have given a, an alert saying uh by the way i can't save these rules yeah, that's entirely yeah. possible. Yeah. So, yeah. so whacking it now, now for any of these, and you know, we're going to talk I think, a, a little bit more about plist files and, and whacking them before you whack a plist file, make uh, sometimes, and I've noticed this more in lion than, uh, I don't know so much in snow lever, but it seems that lion is a bit more careful in that it seems to create uh, not only a plist file or like I mentioned here, but a dot backup file. Because you want to be careful. I mean, you may have very valuable data like mail rules. I think I got like 40 of them. So uh, if we ever suggest you get rid of a plist file, please create a backup of it somewhere and you know, change the name of it and then uh, and, and see what happens yeah. if the OS isn't doing it for you. Yeah, with plist files, you know, and actually what I was about to say goes back to uh, my old, the old OS 9 and prior days when files could could actually be found and no, even if you moved them, I was going to say even just moving a, a, with plist files, moving them from their, their, wherever they are in this case, in that, you know, mail uh, hierarchy, there, moving them to the desktop or whatever is enough. That's actually true with just about anything. Now it used to be in Mac OS nine that files, uh, if you were writing to say a word document and you moved it out of your documents folder to the desktop, it could still find it there because it knew it by its file ID. Uh, that's not the case with with um, with the current file system. Once it's moved out of its location, the, the OS doesn't just magically know where it is. Um, I don't think. But uh, but that certainly was the case. But but anyway, with plist files, certainly moving them out and just to the desktop or to some folder somewhere else is is totally fine as a, as a way of, of preserving them while you test to see if their removal solved your problem. All right. Uh, you know, while we're on mail, let's uh, let's go to Mark. Mark writes. John and Dave, I have a really strange problem with mail that I'm hoping you can help me with that being ghost mail messages. 
I have an exchange email account for work that is accessed by my MacBook Air, Mac Mini, iPhone, and iPad. The MacBook Air and the iPhone are the main machines. The Air is where the problem is. Occasionally, approximately once a month, when I try to delete messages, I get an error message. For example, the message uh, subject X could not be moved to the mailbox trash, but the message will be deleted on the server and on my other devices. The only way I can delete the message is to quit mail, go to the inbox folder in my user directory in that mail V2 folder and dig down into the mailbox, into the inbox and delete the message, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do. Uh, but in this case, that that's OK, that that will work. Uh, reboot the machine, open mail. And in most cases, the message will be gone. But sometimes they come back and the same has to be done again. But I have one mail that's been going and coming back since November. This has been annoying. Uh, I'm a big believer in the whole inbox zero thing. So this is really annoying. Any ideas? Okay, so I've seen this with IMAP accounts sometimes where the uh, server uh, either you maybe you lose connection to the server even after you sent the command. And so mail doesn't know that the message isn't there. And essentially mail is out of sync with the server and it can persist that way for a while. Uh, really, the best solution anytime you have any kind of problem where you feel like mail is out of sync with the server it is on an IMAP server, that being uh, an exchange acts that way is inside mail. Highlight that mailbox, go to the mailbox menu and choose rebuild. That's going to delete your local copy of all of those messages and then re pull them all down from the server, getting you back up in sync with the server. And in your situation, Mark, I think it's the perfect uh, solution because I think that's really going to going to solve this kind of and it may it may be enough to solve it going forward. But Again, if you lose that connection with the exchange server while you're doing something, uh, even if it's just for a second, if it's at the wrong second, uh, it can cause this this sort of problem. But since you do inbox zero, the whole rebuild step shouldn't take very long because you're not pulling down thousands and thousands of messages. So hopefully that will do it. I see that happen sometimes when I delete multiple messages. It will, uh, you know, if it if it can't complete the transaction for whatever reason, uh, it you know, it dumps that one and just leaves it kind of floating. And sometimes it'll even have like a weird date and no content and that sort of thing. So rebuild will do it. Any, uh, any thoughts on this one, John? No. All right. Uh, so while we're on the corruption thing, let's go to, uh, let's wrap up corruption with, with Wesson. And I'm not sure that we have an answer here, but, uh, but maybe one of you does. And we'll, we'll certainly talk about our thoughts on this. Uh, Wesson writes, I have a Mac mini that I purchased in December of 09. It came with Snow Leopard server, uh, which I updated all the way to 1068. Recently, I updated to Lion server 1073. The problem, which has persisted since Snow Leopard, the following items will not stay changed. Each time I reboot or log into any account, the account returns to its previous condition in terms of login items and items in the dock. I thought that upgrading the Lion server would hopefully fix this, but it did not. The condition is true of all of the accounts on my Mac. So I have a couple of questions. What system files do I need to delete or edit? Where do I find the plist that has the login items? I'd like to delete it. Where do I find the plist that has the doc contents? I'd like to delete it. And it appears there is a task that refreshes the doc and login items that runs on a periodic basis. Do you have any idea what this would be? I've reset PRAM without change. So, 
Uh, there are a lot of questions here and, and we'll answer them all. Uh, but, but, you know, something and I did some searching for this. And so, John, maybe I dreamt this, but I thought there was something about server that let you freeze an account in terms of what could be changed in it. I, again, I may have I may be totally making this up and I certainly couldn't find anything uh, in in Google searching for it. But I just something I ran a Snow Leopard server or a Leopard server, I should say, uh, for a while here. And I just remembered something about limiting accounts from being able to change themselves. And uh, and so if if in fact I did not dream that up and it actually exists, then that could be the solution here. But like I said, no Google searching uh, today on my part came up with with any of that. Um, and John, yeah. I, I, you 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 told him to delete a couple of files, but it, it didn't help. Right. The the P list files that he asked about. Oh, well, it. it I answered his question. So to answer his question, and this is just a, a good general mm-hmm. strategy for where to find a lot of these things. But yeah, he, he said it didn't change it, but it, you know, it's a good first step here. Absolutely. But the thing is, so he, he, he specifically asked login items and doc, where is this stored? And there are two P list files. Oh, our friend P list files are coming back to haunt us again. <laughs> And typically you're going to find these in two places. Um, and actually I wrote back and, and did a follow-up to them. But the thing is you will either, so you're going to find them in either your home directory slash library slash preferences. And that's going to be user level information or slash library slash preferences. And that's system level that, that applies to uh, all users on the computer. And the two files in question are com.apple.loginitems.plist. And I've had, I've had problems with this in the past too. And, and yeah, if you look, if you look in that file and open it with your favorite plist editor, whatever it is, you will see all the login items that are in your uh, user accounts, login items, uh, system preference. And the other file is, uh, of course, com.apple.doc.plist. And that's where all the doc items are stored. Now, he did indicate that he whacked the doc file and that it reset everything to the default. So something happened, but not what he wanted. Right. And he's still so to answer that to question, those... Right. So those are the, 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 yeah, so there's a problem beyond this, but uh, yeah, those are the two files. Yeah. You know, so I'm, if it's not this mysterious thing that I've dreamt up uh, and I would check permissions, both uh, system level permissions, which again, you can do with disk utility or user level permissions, which require restarting uh, from the recovery partition or your uh, boot DVD or, or whatever you want there, but not booting from the drive and then running that command line. Uh, 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 what is it? Reset password, I think is the, is the thing that you need to run in line. And then from there you can actually reset permissions. We've got an article on it at TMO that we will uh, put into the show notes, but, um, but that, you know, those two things would certainly help if, if in fact that's, you know, that's a permissions problem. Uh, again, I bring up sync services because when I was testing this uh, to prep this earlier today, I updated something in my doc and I saw it update a ton of stuff in sync services, but I've never, ever synced my doc with sync services and certainly not on the machine that I was doing this on, uh, which is only, you know, six months old, maybe. So, uh, so it, it, you know, something is happening out there. Now, login items don't sync with sync services. So that's what kind of made me think, well, this probably isn't it, but worth, uh, worth noting that 
you know, log that, uh, that doc stuff uh, in sync services can, uh, can cause that, cause that problem. So that's, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what else to do. I'm hoping somebody out there has a, uh, has a good, has a good answer for us here because, uh, cause I would love to solve this one. So if you know, let us know. We would love to hear it. Uh, you know, if you want to let us know, you can email us at premium at com. I didn't quite hear you, Dave. I, I thought you said premium at com. I did say uh, premium at com, And that's, uh, that's the email address that you can send, well, basically whatever you want. Screenshots, text, obviously, audio files. Um, that, that, that's pretty much cookies. Cookies. Yeah. No, no, no. Cookies via email. They don't taste very good. They get stale. That's the problem. I think it's something to do about, you know, turning them into electronics and then back cookie recipes work though. They work great in email. Don't you think? Or you can pick up the telephone and call. 206-666-4335. Which for those of you with letters on your phone is geek. Oh, uh, let's see. You can Skype us uh, at Mac Geek Gab, and that'll get right to our voicemail box as well. So we'll get that when we go to prep the shows. That certainly will work. We like iTunes comments, uh, although please don't send questions there because we can't answer them there. So uh, so that's better. You can visit the Mac Geek Gab forums, the Mac Geek Gab crew forums over at TMO. Oh, that's yeah. that's a, yeah. uh, a great place. There's a lot of people that, that chit chat over there. So uh, yeah, I got to stop by someday. You do. No, it's, it's a great place to, <laughs> to, to get some questions answered. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of smart people that, uh, that, well, frankly, um, you know, many of you folks are out there answering questions in the, in the MGG forums. So that's pretty, that's pretty good. Yeah. Definitely check that out. Facebook.com slash Mac geek where you can see notifications as to when the shows are posted, when the show notes are posted you can even put questions and we've, we've answered uh, short focused questions on Facebook. Absolutely. What else? And the Twitters. We love the Twitters. Well, I like the Twitters. You like the Twitters, but to reach us on Twitter, the podcast is Matt Geekab. I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. That pilot Pete guy is pilot Pete. And of course, last, but certainly not least Mac observer. Outstanding. All right. Uh, so we've now finished up the corruption section. Uh, John, why don't we, uh, it, this is one that's come up before, but it's, uh, it's been long enough that it's good to revisit it for a, uh, for a brief refresher. So, uh, so why don't you take it away with Joseph? Oh, Joseph. Oh, I love this one. So <laughs> uh, let me bring it up here. Do I have it? Uh, hold on. Uh, Joseph, there we go. No, not that. Oh, the other one. Okay. Guys, I have little snitch and it keeps detecting your request from Google software update.bundle via KSURL. I'm not aware that I have any Google software other than Chrome. Well, <laughs> I think Chrome is Google software or uses at least a, a Google component. So I thought it would delete the process to be rid of the request. As you can see from the image, I can't find the process ID. What is going on here? I, I, have, an, on here? I have an answer. I know the answer to yeah. this, John. Delete little snitch. You're right. No. <laughs> the thing is, Little Snitch is a wonderful tool to monitor phone home or outgoing requests. But in this case, this is something kind of sneaky that Google is doing. And, and you know, it's kind of concentrated evil here. Wow. 
in something, well, well, it's something called Google Software Update, which I have to say, if it wasn't for Little Snitch, I wouldn't even know that it's doing what it's doing. With Little Snitch, though, or I'm sorry, with Hardware Growler. No, Hardware Growler shows me what's happening here is that every now and then Google has this software update mechanism that they install that kind of sneakily behind the scenes phones home and sees if there are updates to Chrome or other software. And I'm okay. I see it happening because I'm running Hardware Growler. But if you want to get rid of it, so, so it's their own software update mechanism which has a lot of people shaking their fists because it doesn't really follow the model of a lot of other people, or at least the older version of it. I think maybe the newer version does, but, but so here's the answer. It's called Google software update. Fortunately, Google has a support article that tells you how to get rid of it. And I'm not going to read it to you, but it's basically a single line in the terminal. You whack, uh, you basically invoke uh, their program and say uninstall and it gets rid of it. So, We'll link to that article, but it is certainly something that's that's out of the ordinary and, and again, deserves a fish shake from a lot of people because why not update your software like everybody else using something like my favorite is Sparkle? And you've all seen this before. Well, almost every app that, that's not an Apple app, or at least the ones that I like, use something called Sparkle that phones home. If it sees something new, it says, hey, by the way, there's a new update. Would you like to install it or, or you want me to go away or what? I don't like their, their method of doing it, and uh, but Google seems to like doing this. So that's the answer, and then that should get rid of the uh, mysterious process. That's great. What I do you think? I, I mean, uh, I mean, are you uh, uh, have you run into this or? I well, I haven't because I don't run Little Snitch, so I'm sure it runs on my machine occasionally, but I have no idea. Or hardware growler? Do you run hardware growler? No, I don't. I um, you know those kinds of dude. Wow, I don't need those interruptions in my day. (laughs) I'm I'm blissfully unaware. Um, and and perhaps that's you know, perhaps that's not good. I think you should reconsider hardware growler. I I I think it'll tell you it'll tell you more that's useful than that's annoying. But you may no, you may be right about that. That that's actually an interesting thing because if if hardware is coming and and I realize in this case it's not actually hardware; it's a disk image. But uh, but in 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 most cases, if hardware comes online or offline as a surprise, that's bad. You know, I mean, I should know if I've plugged in hardware or turned something on or turned something off. So well, that well, that and the thing is, that's what they're doing. Is that well? It, so it 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 spans both hardware and network. Uh, the mounting and unmounting of network volumes, and to me, and that's where it catches this. Google uh, thing, because what it's really doing kind of secretly in the background is it's mounting a disk image, but it's kind of doing it in a sneaky way. But if right. you have hardware growler, it shows you that this image is being uh, mounted and then unmounted, but definitely for, for just the whole hardware thing. So, you know, when, when, when you're connecting to a wireless access point or disconnecting USB firewire, any hardware. So try it out on one of your machines. Yeah, I think it's a few bucks. I think I think it's a it's it's a buy thing now. No, I I own Growl. I don't know if I own Hardware Growler, but no, certainly... Hardware Growler is a separate. Now it's a separate package because uh, I think they had to. Uh, I think it's a couple of bucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. Well, uh, the little were... snitch. You're 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 not on the little snitch bandwagon. No, I, I mean I I I know I understand your feelings about it. It's intrusive. It it it, it can be annoying and confusing for for people that don't want that level of detail. Right. 
Well, and, and that's actually where it gets really dangerous is if you install it thinking that it's going to save you and then you wind up just saying ignore, 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 and you get in the habit of doing that, which is what happened with a lot of Windows users because Windows actually did this. And uh, I think it still does at some level where it was just constantly pestering you with all these, you know, do you want to let this program do this? Do you want to let this program do that? And you finally just, you know, you got to get stuff done with your computer, of course. So you just learn to, you know, the user almost becomes conditioned to click. Yeah. Ignore, ignore, ignore. And you have no idea what you just clicked ignore to. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I sat and watched just automatically click things. And and I agree with you. Yeah. The thing is, I I think I know enough where I can permit or ignore because I know what, 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 who is asking and, and what they're asking for. Anyways, hardware growler, $1.99. I think you should uh, give it a whirl. I think yeah. you like it. Awesome. Cool. Cool, cool. All right. You going to tell us about John now? <sighs> John's got a problem. <laughs> and let, let me, uh, I feel bad for him, but I, I think I found the, ad, uh, the answer to this. Hi, guys. First, the easy one. Oh, oh. He has two questions here. I don't know if we have an answer to the second one, but at least the first one I do. Hi guys. First, the easy one, the battery icon on my 2007 MacBook pro has started to display an X. The battery was replaced about 18 months ago. How come? All right. So I'm going to, I don't know if we'll address the second question, but we'll certainly address the first. So, uh, first off, what is he talking about? And I'll tell you what he's talking about. Um, if you go to, System Preferences, Energy Saver, and you'll have a battery entry, and then there will be a selection. And actually, let me look at my portable, because obviously it's not on my Mac Mini, because it doesn't have a battery, but I just want to get to the right place here. All right, so System Preferences, Energy Saver, if you have a battery tab, and then you will see a checkbox, Show Battery Status in Menu Bar. That will then show you a little icon that'll have various different uh, pieces of information. And unfortunately, one of them is a battery that has an X through it. And as far as I know, what this means is your battery is defective. Either your battery is defective or your battery is stone cold dead and shot. Yeah. Now, the thing is, just that icon alone is not going to tell you what's happening. So I offer not one, not two, Dave, but three suggestions as to where you can go for this information. So one, you can go to the place that I just mentioned. If you go to Energy Saver, Battery, you should see a line of data towards the bottom of the window telling you the battery charge, estimated time until full, and probably if the battery is malfunctioning, some additional information. A couple of other places, though. Uh, you can also go to, uh, I'm sorry, system profiler or system information, depending on if you're running Snow Leopard or Lion, and look under the hardware power section, and that will have an entry that shows you a number of pieces of information about your battery, including, I think, well, the probably the most important one is status. And normally it should say normal, but it may say service battery is one I've seen when the battery has uh, reached its... Uh, end of its usable life and maybe eligible for replacement or uh, I love this utility here uh, and, and I run it constantly on my MacBook pro called battery health monitor from sonora sonoragraphics.com. And that shows you uh, a number of stats about the battery and also some of the indicators like is the battery shot. So he said he'd get back to us, but between all of those, I, I suspect the battery may be shot. 
Oh, I definitely have. You, have you gotten? I don't think I've ever gotten the battery icon with the X through it. I, I think you told me you had, Dave. Yeah, I have with a client it, back, a number of years ago. But yeah, it it. I mean, it's it's the battery either telling the system that it's shot or not reporting anything to the system in such a way that the system decides. Yeah, look, this I I got nothing, and and yeah, you just you just got to replace it. The good news is Apple Care. Um, if you've got it, will will replace it for you uh, in most cases. And, and even sometimes if not, um, but it depends on the wear cycles on the battery and this, that, and the other thing, but it's certainly worth talking to Apple about to see what they'll do uh, for you. That's my feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, they replaced it for me. Yeah. When I, when I had the initial problem, yeah, yeah. got on the phone and, and actually it was kind of cool is that I ran a system profiler and they said, yeah, click on this and this and this. And it actually sent my system report to the rep I was on the phone with. Yeah. And he's like, yep. And he looked at the cycles and the, uh, the power left and he's like, yep. He's like, we're sending you two new batteries. You, uh, you sent us back the broken ones and, uh, yeah, but that's going to happen less and less because of course the age of, uh, replaceable batteries is, uh, is ending at least for Mac portables. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Apple will still replace them in your MacBook air or, or what have you. But, oh, um, okay. But that oh, yeah. requires you, of course, to send the machine in. Right? Or, or bring it in. Remember, they do oh. a lot of laptop oh. repairs at, oh, can the, they? Oh. at the Apple stores. Yeah. yeah okay, they so they can now. replace the battery, uh, even though, yeah, so it's embedded in the machine. And yep. yeah, they, they got to screw. Oh, okay. But, so they have the parts uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of the Apple stores. Oh, good yeah. to know. Yeah, okay. they, don't, they don't ship off laptops all that much anymore, from what I understand. They, they actually do the repairs right in-house. At, uh, at the Apple stores, which is great. Uh, Cause that makes me sad. I, I just like the concept of a replaceable battery. Yeah. But because I can have multiple ones. Yeah. The know? issue, the issue with that is, you know, a, a machine like the MacBook air could not exist with a replaceable battery because they were able to, because they were able to fit the battery in to the overall design. Whereas if they had to do it, uh, oh, it's remo- kind of funky shaped. Yeah. Yeah. If they had to do it as a removable two things, I mean, they could make a funky shaped removable battery. No one's limiting them there. But uh, but you you have to encase it in something. And so you're actually losing all that that volume uh, that you need to dedicate to the case and the connectors and all of that stuff could be more battery. And and that's what Apple finally decided was they said, we want we want as much battery power in these things as possible. So get rid of this removable case and the bay and the connectors and all of that stuff that has to exist and has to be, you know, uh, uh, sturdy enough to to survive multiple removals and all that. They said, if we can get rid of that, we can just add more battery capacity. And so that's that that's mm-hmm. been their mentality. Uh, again, you know, it's not perfect, but um, but, you know. It is what it is. No, yeah. I'm with you. And actually what I did is, um, so I did with my machine once, uh, my Apple batteries, uh, my second set died. Well, one died and one I gave to the, uh, the, the airplane gods at JetBlue because I accidentally <laughs> left it in the, in the seat back. Yeah. <laughs> in the seat in front of me. Yeah. But when I bought new ones, I've actually been very happy with, uh, so I got some from newer and I think they're about $30 less than Apple's. I think Apple's went for like 129 and newers uh, with the, pretty much the same capacity went for 99 bucks. So That's I got great. two newer batteries and I'm pretty happy with those. So uh, for people looking for replacement batteries for their, you know, 2008 or before MacBook pros, uh, take a look at newer. They're, 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 I'm happy. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We like that. Huh. All right. Uh, let's move on to, let's move on to cool stuff found. Uh, the, the first one, man, I'm so excited about this. Robin writes several VNC clients were mentioned on a recent show, but you missed the best one of them all. At least for me, I have used several and they all work, but I kind of struggle working through the touchscreen on my iPad and iPhone until I tried screens. It's a brilliant touch enabled VNC client that works like a dream, at least for all of my Macs. And, and so I, I went to check this out because I actually do wind up doing remote control enough that this matters to me. It's not something I do all day long, obviously, but it is nice to be able to do it. So I downloaded screens and uh, and I didn't have my iPad. It's a universal app, uh, but I didn't have my iPad at my desk. So I, I, I did it on my iPhone. And I have to say this was hands down the smoothest VNC, the smoothest remote access experience I've ever had on my iPhone. I've always been really hesitant to do anything uh, because I'm, I'm worried I'm going to click something at the wrong time because it's a weird thing to, you know, be emulating a keyboard and a mouse from, a, you know, a touchscreen and, and the tiny little one on, on the iPhone at that, or at least tiny in comparison. So, uh, but this thing was awesome. Now I have to be honest, it's not cheap. It's 20 bucks. So I, I hesitated before I bought it and I thought, no, nah, you know what? In the interest of, uh, of the show, let me just buy it. I am so happy. I bought it. Then I, uh, I ran it on my iPad and the two Macs that I had set up on my iPhone automatically were set up on my iPad because it syncs the config using iCloud. So that was kind of a, a nice little, uh, little bonus. It uh, it'll let me take screenshots. It'll store my login information, though. It does not store your password in iCloud, which is really kind of a nice thing, actually, I think. Uh, but uh, but man, I, I it's just so smooth and so easy to use. So, yeah. Thank you, Robin. Great stuff. Yep. John, I, I, I know it's not I know it's not cheap, but I uh, if you ever think that you would want to control your Mac from your from your iPhone, it's actually smooth. I mean, I don't think you're going to be, you know, typing your, you know, the next, uh, the next opus on there or anything, but, uh, but opus? it's handy. The penguin. That's right. Yes. Yes. From Bloom County. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think what did I install? And I think I said, I think I installed real VNC, which I use on occasion if I want to do remote access to my, uh, yeah. It's okay on the, I mean, it really, no, it's pokey. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's not, it's not an ideal user experience, but it uh, it gets the job done. It does. I don't do that too often. Right. Yeah. Now it's good stuff. You get what you you pay for. I guess so. Yeah. This one, man, it's great. Yeah. So anyway, uh, now I get it. Now that I launched screens over here, I got to get back to, oh, and it'll, it'll tunnel over. So actually, um, so, It'll tunnel over SSH if you want to do a secure connection, which is great. It will also do kind of a, a pseudo back to my Mac thing. There's a there's a URL that you go to and you sign up for their uh, screens connect is what it is. In fact, I think it's screensconnect.com and, uh, and it is. And then you download an app to your Mac and uh, and you can access your Mac from remote not just from the local network because it syncs up with um adobe which is the company that makes screens it syncs up with their servers and you can access from from wherever you want so it's actually pretty cool it's uh they've they've really you know clearly they use this themselves so and hey you know well i guess it'll do airplay mirroring 
but I don't think it'll do sound, but I might, I might be wrong about that. That would be an interesting solution, right? To the, uh, to the first question we had today from Jeremy about uh, playing. DVDs. Well, that was my question. So VNC is certainly a way to extend video, but um, could it be a way for people to remotely view video? Maybe not. Uh, I mean, VNC, I don't know if it's the performance champ as far as a protocol, though I yeah. think it does some compression, but still, I don't, I don't know if it's cut out to do uh 24 or 30 or whatever frames per second video. Right, right, right. Yeah. I have to check it out. Yeah. They have a, they have a Mac uh, VNC client as well. Screens for Mac as opposed to screens for iOS. Uh, it's all at adovia.com, but uh, the Mac version is $10 more. It's uh, 29 bucks, but you know, I, I, I probably should check this one out too. Cause it looks, you know, if it's smooth at all, like, this is for uh, for iOS. I probably would like it. All right. Uh, okay. Moving on to Greg. I think. I'm gonna find it though. Greg writes. He said, uh, uh, "Where am I? I'm gonna make sure I get the right one because Greg has Greg has EXIF data embedded times. in photos is what he was talking about, right? Yeah, that's right. We actually had a couple of people. Uh, we talked about." stripping the exif data meaning the location data and even the any personalized data you know the camera that took the picture all of that stuff and and so greg found one that's uh free well donationware called small image that will uh it, it's really built to make uh jpegs small and as small as they possibly can be for you know for download over the internet and uh and so uh one of the things that it does kind of a uh, an ancillary benefit is it strips out the, uh, the EXIF data. So that, that's, that's certainly one of them. Um, and that's, you know, for the price, if you got to get rid of the data, that's not a bad way to do it. So that's number one. And then Scott, uh, did you, have you, had you tried that one out, John? Did you have anything you wanted to say on that before we move on to Scott? Cause he's got two of them that'll do it for us. Nope. I, I know that we're out there. You, you would, sprung it on me as a surprise question and i think i mentioned that a graphic converter as far as i can tell has a uh, service option that does this but yeah i didn't look any oh that's right that because i knew that our loved listeners would come to our aid <laughs> and they did and not they did. once but twice that's thank right. you very much so and then uh and then scott found two others one is called photo privacy and that is i'm looking in the mac app store now 399 so there's you know yet another one and and that one's got a little more uh you know a little a little it's not just stripping everything it allows you to kind of pick and choose what you're what you're doing there and then uh and then one other in the mac app store that uh that allows you to do even more but Again, you pay a little more for nine ninety nine is EXIF Changer E X I F Changer. So lots of uh, lots of options there for you folks who want to strip or modify the data in your in your photos that you've taken. Did you try? Have you tried any of these, John, or no? No. All right. No. No. Graphic converter and uh, or aperture. Aperture. It's kind of buried, but you can certainly strip it with an aperture. If you know where to look, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of buried. Cool. Of course, the first way to prevent this, uh, as we mentioned, but I'll mention it again, is to go to uh, uh, the uh, preferences on, on your iDevice location services and turn off location services for camera or whatever photo app 
And then what it should do, hopefully, at least for camera, I know it does, is the data, at least the GPS location data is not stored in the photo because you told it not to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good point. All right. And then um, we've got an interesting one that uh, that Greg sent in. And this is this is, you know, I was talking with John Martellero about this, uh, but uh, but I'll tell you what it is first. So Greg found an article at CNET that uh that then talked about an Apple script that was made. And, and this article at CNET talked about creating using folder actions to monitor your launch agents folders, because those are the places where, or some, one of the places where a lot of uh, malicious scripts could insert themselves. And you wouldn't necessarily know that something was there. You know, launch agents isn't something that shows up. Even if you go into your, um, user account and look at, you know, uh, startup items or launch items, this, this stuff kind of exists outside of that realm. And, uh, and so they, they had this article that talked about creating using folder actions to watch and alert you. And, uh, and that's all great. And, and that's fine. But, uh, someone else went, it's actually the computer incidents response center of Luxembourg or otherwise known as circle. It reminds me of like a, a, uh, one of the spy agencies like the, 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 in a James Bond movie, you know, it's circle, but anyway, uh, they, they wrote a, they wrote a good utility and basically wrote just that they, they, they made this and, and, uh, cooked it all together. And, and now it monitors, I think seven different folders on your Mac and, uh, and it'll come up and tell you if it changes. Now it might change when you're installing something and you know that, but at least now, you know, and uh, and like I said, I was talking to John Martellero about it and he, his comment was that, you know, this this shows how um, how static the security of Mac OS 10 is. I mean, why isn't it, you know, being more proactive about monitoring these really high, you know, high targeted uh, or highly targeted locations or potentially highly targeted locations? And it's not it's not you know, there's nothing in Mac OS 10 that pre- prevents you from from installing something and in especially your home folder, you know, library launch agent. So anyway, uh, now you can at least know that it's there. Huh? So I'll have to check that out because you, you know, the, that's actually been a, a problem for Steve in that a lot of software, when you delete it. So what happens is a lot of installers, in addition to installing the software itself in your application folder or wherever, will put some extra goodies in either launch agents or there's another folder with the the word launch in it, which I don't recall off the top of my head, but they'll install a plist file, which basically I think is, is a launch D job, which the next time you boot your system or even immediately will start this kind of background process. And uh, no, it's a good thing. But the problem is a lot of times is when you chuck the software uh, or you, you delete it, unless you use one of these app deleters, it doesn't get rid of the plist file that is placed in that launch agent folder. And then what happens is you get these recurring messages in your console saying, I can't find this. I can't find this. I can't find this because it's it's not, it's not part of normally the install process. So knowing when somebody puts something there, I agree with you is, is a good thing because it seems to be kind of like an Achilles heel. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. And so I ran this on, on, well, on my work Mac uh, down in the office, I didn't put it on this one yet, but I will. I I just don't, I kind of have a rule that I don't like to install software while we're doing the show, but, uh, but you know, this one, this one, I could, this one I could do it. So now the group you were talking about was chaos, right? K A O S. 
That was that was get smart though. Yes, it was okay. chaos and control and control, right? <laughs> but 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 no, it was Spectre in the James Bond movies. Spectre was yeah. James Bond. Yeah, yes, and actually, I think another one uh, uh, as part of the good guys here. But I think the U.S. version is Cert. Right. Yes, that's right. Computer Emergency Response Team, I think, is the U.S. version of the the Circle. Did you say was the name of the group? C I R C L. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they like to think they're like spies. I mean, that's cool. Why wouldn't you? Well, they kind of are. I know. Aren't they? I know. I mean, they're looking for evildoers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And protecting us from. Yeah. No, it's it's good stuff. I, I, I appreciate their efforts. It's a good thing. And we also appreciate the efforts of the band who are Dude. coming in from the cold. That's right. It's not that cold outside. But yeah, you know. No, it's, it's cold enough. All right. Uh, let's see. We've already told you how to contact us. So let's take a moment, um, since we have a moment, and we can create we a do. moment. Well, we're going to create a nice little moment. I, I just wanted this to say thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who uh, continue to support us directly with the premium and indirectly by supporting all our sponsors. It's it's fantastic. So uh, you're you're among the, the the favored elite here, and you know why. So thank you very much. We we uh, we couldn't and wouldn't do this without you. It would not be as much fun as it is. Because they send us they send us money. Well, yeah, and they subscribe and they they contribute their questions, and I mean it's it's fantastic. I, I love it. It's great. So I concur. How yeah. long have we been doing the premium thing? About premium thing has two, been two, two, two mm. yeah, two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and I yeah. think we're actually approaching our uh, for 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 the the other or the, the podcast in general. I think we're approaching June seven years. June thirteenth right? will be year number seven for us. Yeah, all right, that's right. And we're approaching episode number four hundred too. And it's possible if we, if we, I think if we, I think we have to take a week off. But we could possibly do show number four hundred on June thirteenth. Actually, but that would be impossible. Or well, we we will have to do a show on June thirteenth. It won't matter. Uh, but uh, but I think I'll be at WWDC. I was one of the uh, the fortunate. Oh, you got lucky. Well, I didn't get lucky. Wow. I'd like to point out that this was. Uh, well, how did? Because it sold out in two hours. I mean, I know a lot of people on the West Coast were really pissed. Yeah. Well, I was in Austin uh, on vacation, right? Because it was last week when this happened. Right. But, but the thing is, they announced it very early, and people on the West Coast, most of them, unless they were. Insomniacs yep. were, were not awake. And so by the time they woke up two hours later, the, the tickets were gone. Yep. So I had woken up early that day just because I'd woken up early. And uh, I was we had rented an apartment in Austin. We used HomeAway.com again, uh, which was awesome. It was this right on 6th Street, a two-story loft. Uh, it, it, we paid 150 bucks a night. We each had our own beds. It was great. Wow. Yeah, it's the only way to go. But anyway, so I was downstairs in the in the living room, kind of in the sitting at the dining room table, and uh, I was on my laptop. And right about seven thirty two a.m. Austin time, I got an email um, that uh, said, "Yep, the WWDC page has changed," and that was because I wrote a script about two months prior to uh, to check that page every five minutes. And to it, actually, you know, we talked about CRCs earlier in the show. What I did is I had it read so the page. So is that what you? 
Okay. Yep. Had it read the page and 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 generate a CRC from that, which you know, like John said before, it does a calculation on the on the page, and then if the page hasn't changed, that calculation won't change, and the chances of the page changing and that calculation remaining the same are so infinitesimally small. I know it's, it's ridiculous. It it's, won't. It, it's trustable, right? So now uh, you didn't check because I think pages usually have another thing, like you know the late last updated, but it, it, I agree that the, the methodology you went with is the best because so you detected any change and, and your logic was if there's a change, it probably means that yeah, I tickets take, are now available. I want to take a look. That's right. And and so I had to, I did have to modi- modify the script earlier, you know, many, many weeks prior because there were times when the page would come up with a 404 response, meaning which is the one that says the page mm. is unavailable. And so I uh, checked it. I, I just built something into my little script that, that said if it's a 404, ignore it um, and move on. Actually, it said if it's a 404, check it again. And uh, and, and if, it, if it comes up different again, then alert me. Otherwise, just, you know, forget about it and, uh, and good to go. So, uh, so my script worked flawlessly. I, I took some screenshots. I sent them to Jeff Gamut. He ran the article on TMO. We were one of the first sites to report that, that the tickets were out because of this script. And I also happened to uh, to get my WWDC ticket. So, and then I, you know, I joined this WWDC alert service, which was going to page me when when tickets mm-hmm. went on sale. And I got that page a full hour later. Uh, <sighs> but but to their credit, tickets were still available when I got that. They it took about two hours for it to uh, for it to sell out. So you know. But anyway, yeah, I'm going. So I'll be there. That'll be the Wednesday morning at WWDC. But we have to do the, we'll have to do a show that day. So that'll be good. That'll be good. Sure. Yeah, why not? I I think they're probably going to talk about, um, what is it, Mountain Lion? Mountain Lion. That's right. Yeah. Well, I believe the official, and, you know, I've had actually friends ask me this. They're like, well, when's it coming out? And I'm like, well, Apple said summer. As far as I know, that's... They're on target. I think they're right now, not that it's a big secret. I think they're up to what, DP3 now? Or four? Three or four? Yeah, it's like the third DP3 with an update or I don't know, something. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're but I think Apple has publicly said that summer is when it's it's going to be released to to the masses. Yeah. So, yeah, so my, and my guess is you're right that, that, you know, a lot, well, they've even said this, that a lot of the focus at WWDC will be on Mountain Lion. But I, I think they also said it'll be on. Uh, on iOS on iOS they did not I don't think they specified let me look at the article here yeah it'll be about the future of iOS and OS 10 so who knows what that means oh good yeah because I think a lot of people felt that they didn't pay enough attention to Mac OS at the last event uh, well, the last one was Lion. Was Actually, that your they, take? No, oh, I'm sorry. No, the last one they played. They paid ton of attention to OS 10. The year before, it was all, oh. basically all iOS. But okay. you know, um, and I think this has changed at Apple. But initially, they had basically one team of engineers that worked on operating systems, and they would move them back and forth between iOS and OS 10. I think I think they've they've added more staff now, frankly. Um, to to handle that, so now they can they can do both at the same time. But and on that note, yeah, 
I guess that's that, right? Where it's time to uh, it's time to move on. Do you like how I've I've extended the uh, the the t- the time out on on the song here? We could just talk forever. It only took you six years to <laughs> loop together the audio into. Uh, so what do you, you took the original audio, which was how many minutes, and just I created three, four, five. Yeah. So it was a, it was a cut garage. and paste or copy and paste. It was a garage. No, it was even easier than that, it, which is embarrassing. Uh, it was a garage band file, and I made the loop, which was the hard part, getting that loop exactly right so I could just repeat and repeat. And I made the loop, and then I I just had repeated it, I don't know, whatever, 30 times or something, whatever it was. And so I just tripled that length and GarageBand and saved out a new file. It really was, you know, trivial to, to update this. Oh, but, so that's a parameter in a... Uh, you do it GarageBand file? Yeah, you actually do it graphically. You just kind of drag it out and and extend with the with the little repeat oh, tool. All right. Yeah, it's yeah, it was easy. But anyway, oh. that's how it worked. We would like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for all that he does for us, including converting this show and every other episode into AAC. I'd like to thank Cashfly, C A C H E F L Y dot com for the bandwidth. Most of all, I'd like to thank you, John, for doing the show with me for almost seven years, and you, our listeners, for being with us for just as long. Have fun with your weekend. Hope you feel good, folks. Don't get caught. Made up.